I better get uh, my technology working first. Well, a very good uh, morning to you, brothers and sisters. It really is a, a joy to be with you here this week in this uh, beautiful surroundings, and we thank you very much for the invitation to come here. Uh, we were here 12 years ago when it was at the previous location, and it's uh, just as beautiful here. So it's going to be a good week, I'm, I'm quite sure. Now, you may be asking yourself the question, why are we talking about demons and a superstitious mind this week? What, what possible relevance can that have for any of us? We don't believe in demons. We're not superstitious. We're rational-minded Christadelphians. Well, I hope we're going to see how relevant this topic is for all of us this week, that we can be very, very superstitious in our religion. And the genesis of why I started onto this topic really begins back in the, the 1990s when I was involved in a, an online debate on the subject of the devil and demons, and that piqued my interest. But then really on mission work in Panama is where I really came face to face with belief in demons and superstition. I was giving a, a class on demons, and I thought I did a pretty good job. I went through logically, step by step, what the Bible teaches about demons, what it doesn't teach about demons. And I thought I was very rational, very logical. I thought I did a pretty good job. Except for afterwards, this lady put a hand up and said, uh, Richard, um, I saw a demon in my house at the end of my bed only last week. How do you explain that? And for her, that was, that was the... The, the crux of the whole thing, but any logic, any rationale didn't make any difference because she had seen a demon. And that's what it's like dealing with superstition and belief in demons. And maybe some of you have come into contact with those who do believe in demons and, and the devil. And it's probably the most difficult topic to deal with. More difficult to deal with when we're talking to friends about things to do with the Trinity or the immortal soul, demons often is the very last thing that we tackle, and it definitely was in Panama, a country steeped in superstition. There were idols everywhere. It was a very Catholic country with their, with their graven images, and they had their own superstitions. For example, there was one in which you were not allowed to iron and then go out into the rain because you would get arthritis. And it, there's no connection between those two things. If you iron clothes and then go out into the rain, you won't get arthritis. And yet it was so part of their thinking that they, they believed it, and there was no reason, there was no explanation you could give to them to change their minds. And, and so it is very often with belief in demons. And the irony is that people are often possessed with this belief. It's as if they do have a demon inside them almost that uh, you have to somehow exercise from them. And so it's a very important topic for us as far as preaching is concerned. And the Bible actually tells us how to preach to people who believe in demons. And we're going to have a look at that this week, God willing. But also for ourselves, it, it becomes a very relevant topic for ourselves. And what we're going to see this week, God willing, is a very interesting connection between belief in demons, why people believe in demons in the first place, and the very natural superstitious mind that all of us possess. We are naturally superstitious. 
And we're going to examine that God willing this week. And so it becomes an exhortation for us that we can be just as superstitious in our religion. Now, just to show how relevant it is for us, if you'd like to open your Bibles at the book of Colossians in chapter 2. And here the Apostle Paul is dealing with a problem in the ecclesia at Colossae in which a very superstitious religion had developed. Very similar to how Judaism had developed over the years and had become quite superstitious in some of the, the rituals and ceremonies. And Paul addresses this in, in Colossians chapter 2. And you'll know these words very well. He says in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. And using our rational, logical minds, we understand this, that uh, the various things under the law, for instance, to do with clean and unclean meats, to do with festivals, the Sabbath day, they're a shadow. They're not the, the substance of the truth. They're simply object lessons. We're going through with the teens, for instance, this week, the, the tabernacle and how it was an object lesson. It wasn't in its entirety. The tabernacle wasn't meant to be their religion. It was simply meant to teach them about how they ought to live their lives. And, and we understand this. So don't let any man pass judgment on you concerning these things. These are a shadow, verse 17, of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Make sure those things are simply visual aids, object lessons, and nothing more. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head and from the, from the whole body, nourished and knit together to its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is um, with God. And so he goes on to talk about how you shouldn't let your religion become all about the ritual. That's basically what he's saying there, isn't he? About food and drink and festivals and Sabbath days and so on. It's not about the ritual. You've got to understand the substance, which is Christ. And we understand this. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in a world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now let's pick apart what the Apostle Paul is saying here. There were some in the Ecclesia in Colossae who were saying, don't handle that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. As if the thing in itself could defile you. And of course we, we know that this was true not just in Colossae, but to the, the Jews of the first century very much so. There were certain things you were not allowed to touch or eat, which in themselves cannot defile you. 
at least spiritually speaking. It might be, for instance, uh, unhygienic for certain things, but it's not going to affect you spiritually. But there were members of the Ecclesia and Colossae who said, you shouldn't handle or taste or, taste or touch that because it's going to affect you in a spiritual way. It's going to defile you. And this is what the Jews thought about, for instance, eating unclean animals. They thought that the actual eating of the unclean animal in itself defiled you and made you unclean. Well, if that's the case, then what on earth was Christ doing saying to the Apostle Peter, Arise, kill and eat. If the actual eating of pork makes you unclean, then why did Christ counsel Peter to eat pork? And so we understand, don't we, that it's not the actual eating itself. It's simply an object lesson. It teaches us about making discernments. It, it teaches us spiritual lessons. But the actual ritual itself is neither here or, not, or there. It's simply a ritual. And so this superstitious religion had crept into Judaism very strongly, and it crept into the Ecclesia too. That there were certain things that you would could eat that could spiritually affect you. And, and what superstition is, basically, brothers, brothers and sisters, is the belief that there are these connections between two unrelated things. That there is a magical connection between eating pork and being spiritually unclean. Whereas there is no connection at all between those two things. Peter was allowed to eat pork. There's no magic in pork that makes you an unrighteous person. So that's what we're going to be uh, talking about when it comes to superstition. But we tend to make these associations all the time. We tend to make these connections between things, dead things, and righteousness or unrighteousness. We do it all the time. And if we examine ourselves, we'll, we'll realize that's the case. Now, in contrast to that, look what he says uh, earlier in the chapter in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Our focus should be Christ, the substance, not the ritual, but what the ritual teaches us about Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ is about the actual substance of God's glory, full of goodness and truth. And then in verse 10, he says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And what the Apostle Paul says there, or what he touches on, is on the topic of the sovereignty of God and the authority that God has given to his Son over all things. And that's one of the key words I want us to remember this week, brothers and sisters, is the sovereignty of God. Because what belief in demons does, what superstitious thinking does, is it takes away from the sovereignty of God. It takes away from the fact that God created all things, is in charge of all things, has given His Son authority over all things. And when people start believing in demons and start believing in the power of ritual. 
then they start taking away from the power of God and placing it in other things. So it, it's a, a challenge to the sovereignty of God. So we're going to get onto that, God willing, more how this all applies to us as we go through. So why are people superstitious in the first place? Well, many psychologists have studied the topic of superstition. And there was one interesting study done by the, the periodical Psychology Today. And they broke uh, superstition down into seven subheadings, as we can see there. And they called their study the seven laws of magical thinking. This is another term for superstition. Magical thinking. The imagination that there is this connection between an object or a ritual and an outcome. And there's some magic that connects them, whereas there's nothing in it at all. We invent this connection, this association in our minds. And as you can see there, they've broken down the, the idea of magical thinking or superstition into seven areas. Uh, we won't touch on all of these. Uh, bear in mind, this is, was, came from a completely non-religious um, uh, angle. And some of these things we might debate a little bit with. For instance, uh, everything happens for a reason. Well, we do believe in the providence of God. We do believe that all things work together for good. But some people take that to a completely ridiculous level, saying, my dishwasher broke down for a reason, as if every single little thing happens and that, that the whole world is revolving around me. Okay? And some people think like that, and it, it betrays this superstitious mindset. But some of the more um, subtle things, for instance, uh, objects carry essences. Some people believe this very strongly. They have a special baseball. So they caught it a game, and it was uh, uh, recently uh, Alex Rodriguez hit his 3,000th hit, and someone caught the ball and has it, and it's a special ball, and maybe that, you know, the, and people sometimes believe there's actual something special about a ball or a bat or a glove or, or whatever it might be. And you think, well, do, do we do that? Can we fall into that trap of thinking a, a dead object actually has some special power? Well, just turn with me to the second book of Kings in chapter 18. Because the people of God the rational-minded originally rational-minded logical thinking Jews, by the time you come to the reign of Hezekiah they actually thought there was magic in a dead thing. So here in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it says, He removed the high, this is talking about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, which means it's a piece of brass or bronze. That's what. Uh, Hezekiah said, it's just a thing. There's nothing special in itself. It's just made of metal. And yet, because of the, the folklore perhaps connected with it, that it was set up in the wilderness, and if you looked at it, you were healed, that somehow in the object itself it had power. 
And it took away from the fact that it was God who was teaching them through that object a lesson. And it was God who was forgiving them. It was God who was healing them. It was God who has power over disease and the bite of those serpents. And yet, they took away from the sovereignty of God by saying that the object itself had power. And perhaps we get a little bit like that, brothers and sisters, with some of our, the objects of our worship. But maybe when you take that piece of bread or that sip of wine, that somehow there's something magical in actually doing that, rather than seeing that it's simply an object lesson. Well, if the people of God could uh, come to burn incense to an object, Maybe we can be a little bit like that ourselves. Uh, symbols have power. You see that symbol and you cringe. It's just a thing. It's, not, it's just a shape. In itself, it has no power. And yet, we're so superstitious in our minds that it affects us psychologically and emotionally. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se, but it does betray the fact that we are naturally superstitious. There was an experiment done with people who were given two photos. One was a photo of their mother, and the other was a photo of Hitler. And they were given darts. And they said, throw the darts at the picture of your mother, and throw darts at the picture of Hitler. And they could not throw darts at the picture of their mother, but they were delighted to throw darts at the picture of Hitler. And you can understand that, and we probably all do the same, but it's just a photo. It's not actually your mother. It's not actually Hitler. It's just a photo. If the dart hits your mother a square in the, between the eyes, it won't affect your mother one little bit, or your relationship with your mother. Or shouldn't. <laughs> but it, it, there's, it, it, in itself, there's nothing to it, and yet we make these associations, don't we? And I hope as we go through this, we can think, well, yeah, okay, maybe I am a little bit superstitious. Actions have distance consequences. This is probably the, the thing that we mostly associate with superstition. Uh, we've got a picture up there of a, a sign on a fishing boat. Bananas are bad luck. Fishermen are the most superstitious people in the world. They, of course, are involved in probably the most dangerous occupation, and so they have a multitude of superstitions, including you don't eat bananas on a boat. Thinking that their not eating of a banana will affect whether there's going to be a storm. It's like, there's no connection between those two things. Eating a banana or not eating a banana has no effect whatsoever. And yet, people still perform their little rituals thinking that somehow doing one thing here will affect something over there. And again, it's that magical thinking, making those magical connections between two things. Uh, you see it in the sports arena, you know, the 100 meters final at the Olympic Games, and there's the runner in lane one, runner in lane two, and they all do it. I, I can't do it properly, but you know what they do. And all eight runners do the, the sign of the cross. Well, which one is God going to choose? It doesn't make any sense, does it? They all do it, and they all think that their, their, their performance of their ritual will affect the outcome, and yet they're still first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. It doesn't make any difference to the outcome, and yet this is how people think. Um, 
We won't dwell on these too much. Uh, the mind knows no bounds. This is where you think you're psychic. Uh, my daughter at the moment is in California, and I'm thinking about my daughter. Oh, look at that. She just texted me. I'm psychic. And people think like that, you know? <laughs> Don't you think sometimes you're psychic? You know, you're thinking about your boss, and your boss calls you. You know, that, that sort of thing. And, and people actually do start to believe that they are psychic. Um, the soul lives on. Uh, that's a, an obvious one about the, immort the immortality of the soul. The world is alive. This is where you shout at your uh, computer because it's not working. You treat your computer as if it's a person. That, that's part of superstitious thinking as well. And, um, and so it goes on. This is it's a multifaceted thing of how we make these connections and um, how it is, in fact, very natural to us. And God willing, tomorrow we're going to see that this is not just people in uh, third world countries who maybe don't have the same education. We're going to see tomorrow that they did a study in one of the most rationally minded universities in North America. And they found that people were just as superstitious there as they are in in Panama or any other country of the world. Now, you might be thinking, what has this got to do with demons? Well, it has a lot, actually, to do with demons, especially when we understand that what the Bible teaches us about demons is that demons really, according to the Bible, are simply another term for gods, small gods. In uh, ancient mythology, they had their big gods, like in Greek mythology, they had their big gods like Zeus and um, Apollo and all of, all of the, the main gods. And then they had their small gods. And these they called demons. And that's basically the biblical definition of what a demon is. It is a small god. And when you cast your minds back to uh, ancient times and think about what they were they were involved with there, they had demons for every single little thing, every single phenomena they had a demon for. And it was exactly the same thing as superstitious thinking. So if something happened, it was caused by a demon. It was caused by magic. And so we see the connection between superstition and belief in God. So those seven things here, I've, I've kind of summarized here uh, maybe a connection between superstition and how superstitious thinking actually came out in idolatry. We're going to develop this as we, as we go on. So we can see that uh, people in, in idolatry have their charms and talismans. They have their symbols, their rituals, uh, and their various beliefs, which all stem from this very natural superstitious mind. And it's really interesting to try to figure out, to try and trace back and figure out why did people start believing in demons and idols and all these things in the first place. And it's perfectly natural. It's actually logical that this should have happened. That idolatry should have resulted. So let's look at uh, superstition a little bit further and see how very natural it is to, to our minds, to our animal minds. In fact, uh, what we're going to see in a moment is a little clip showing that superstition is not just something which is 
unique to humans, but also in the animal kingdom. There was a psychologist called B.F. Skinner in the 40s, and he did experiments on pigeons. And he uh, showed that these pigeons actually exhibit superstitious behavior. He placed a series of hungry pigeons in, in cages, and those cages were attached to an automatic food dispenser that would dispense food at set intervals, like every 30 seconds. But what he demonstrated in his, in his experiments is that the pigeon thought that what it was doing when the food was dispensed was how that food was dispensed. So if the pigeon was flapping its wings, that was what caused the food to dispense. And it would keep flapping its wings until the food came out, thinking that its behavior was causing the food to come out. And it exhibits this idea of superstitious thinking. So what we're going to do is play a little clip here. And hopefully this is going to work. We, um, we couldn't get the sound to work. So I'm going to take this microphone. It's only a minute long, a minute, uh, minute and a half. So let me know if... Can you hear that? So, oops, there we go. So I hope you could see there that what he was demonstrating was that the, the pigeon was turning counterclockwise and he was reinforcing that behavior. So every time the pigeon turned clockwise, food came out of the dispenser, reinforcing in the pigeon's mind, that's what caused the food to come. And then he would place that pigeon in, uh, later on in a cage and it would try to get the food to come out by turning counterclockwise. And the pigeon had made this association in its mind between its behavior, its ritual, and an outcome. Whereas there was no connection at all. The food would just come out at set intervals every 15 seconds or however long it was. And so we can see this quote from Skinner himself. He says, pigeons associated the delivery of food with whatever chance actions they had been performing as it was delivered. And that they subsequently continued to perform these same actions. That's how the animal kingdom acts, and that is actually a lot how human beings act. 
And that's how a lot of rituals in history actually formed themselves. People would do a rain dance, for instance, in a, in a pagan society, and it would rain. And they would associate their dance with it raining. And so they would keep the dance going, thinking that, that was causing it to rain. Simple, superstitious behavior. Now, what happens if the pigeon turns counterclockwise and the food doesn't come out? Shouldn't the pigeon think to itself, oh, wait a minute, obviously my turning counterclockwise has nothing to do with the food coming out, therefore I should stop the silly behavior. Or what happens if they do their rain dance and there's a drought? Shouldn't they think to themselves, oh, obviously my rain dance doesn't really produce rain, I should stop doing this. Don't people start to think rationally and stop the behavior? The person who finishes eighth in the Olympic final, shouldn't he think to himself, well, maybe I shouldn't put odd socks on. It doesn't make any difference. Maybe I shouldn't make the sign of the cross. It doesn't make any difference. Why don't people start thinking rationally when their rituals don't bring the desired outcome? Well, in fact, when it doesn't work, it actually reinforces the behavior. This is the weird thing about the human mind. And it's something called the partial reinforcement effect. This is how human beings think. So when someone does their ritual, so they put odd socks in the, on in the morning, thinking they're going to have a good day because they've done that, and they have a bad day. Instead of thinking, oh, I shouldn't bother with the odd socks ritual, they will actually try harder next time to get even more odd socks on because obviously I haven't done the ritual well enough. And they will try even harder and harder and harder to perform the ritual because they've formed this association so hard in their mind. And in fact, superstition is actually reinforced, such as human nature, when the outcome isn't what we're hoping for. And so it, it, superstition actually builds on itself and gets worse and worse and more and more ingrained in the human mind. So it is a very difficult thing to deal with. Now, while we're in Kings, if you want to turn to 1 Kings, let's look at an example of this. And you will remember this very well in 1 Kings chapter 18. And here are the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, they're doing their, they're dancing about in their rituals, as we, as we know, trying to bring rain down from heaven. So in verse 25, it says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves, and after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now this is superstition at work, 
and this partial reinforcement effect. Maybe back in the day, at some point, they said, Oh, Baal, hear us. And they'd done all these other rituals, jumping about and cutting themselves, and it had rained. And they'd associated what they did with it raining. And they'd formed that association in their minds, and now that, this is how they bring rain. And the fact that it's not working just makes them try harder and harder and harder. At first, it's just the, the chant, Oh, Baal, hear us. Okay, that didn't work. All right, next thing. We'll start jumping about. Oh, oh no, we'll have to go to plan C. And they start cutting themselves. And it, 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 they, they try harder and harder and harder to get the rain to come down from heaven. That is the superstitious mind at work. And again, you might be thinking, well, that's fine for the pagan world, but that doesn't come into our lives. How does that affect us? Well, think about King Saul, for instance. What about King Saul and his superstitious behavior? You remember when Samuel didn't arrive on time and Saul forced himself to offer a burnt offering, thinking that his offering would somehow make things better. When actually doing the offering doesn't make any difference at all. And maybe on a Sunday morning we think that simply by partaking of bread and wine, that that somehow makes us righteous. And that's how these sort of things can creep into our behavior. So let's have a look at one example to finish in uh, the New Testament in Mark chapter 7. Here's an example from, again, from the people of God. Here were the Jews who were given the oracles of God, specially chosen by God, sovereign king over all the universe. And yet, look where the Jews found themselves by the time we come to the first century. So, Mark chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk, uh, sorry, do not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So we have these washings of the, the Jews. And you think to yourself, well, maybe it was just hygienic. Maybe there was... Maybe they weren't washing before a meal, and it's, it's sensible what the Jews were involved with. Well, in fact, brothers and sisters, this um, ritual was very complicated in, uh, indeed, and it comes, we can find it in um, the, the Jewish writings of the elders and how this tradition of washings had developed. It's called the Yadayim, which, is, which means in Hebrew, hands. And this washing still exists today in the Jewish culture. And it's very complicated indeed. And we're just going to go through this very quickly. You first had to clean your hands. Then you take a, a special bowl with two handles. 
and you pour it over your hands. But you had to do it in a very special way. You would take the water and pour it over your dominant hand first, and then you would pass it to your uh, other hand and pour it over your non-dominant hand. And you would say a special blessing. Then you would dry your hands, and you're not allowed to speak, by the way. And you think, what on earth is this all about? You're not allowed to speak. Then you would say another special blessing, and then you were allowed to eat. All of this ritual would take place, this, these washings, before they were allowed to eat. And it has nothing at all to do with hygiene. In fact, one modern rabbi has this to say. One must be careful that his hands do not touch his mouth, nose, eyes, or ears before washing his hands in the morning, because there is an evil spirit which rests upon one's hands after sleep, and it is likely to damage these organs. Only after he washes his hands will the evil spirit disappear, and subsequently the danger caused by touching any of his bodily orifices will be eliminated. And you think, well, how primitive is that? And yet these are modern-day Jews who believe that they have to perform this ritual to get rid of evil spirits that are in the water that might get onto their hands, and they have to do it like this and like that and say this special blessing and not speak and so forth. And this developed among the people of God. Later on in the chapter, of course, Jesus says, there's nothing that can come into a man that can defile a man. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. And Jesus gives a slam-dunk answer to superstitious thinking. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what happened to the Jews over time. And if it happened to the Jews, it can happen to us.